Okay, so. I haven't even said anything yet. What? Is this, is this like presumptuous? Because this is so hard to talk. Okay, so a little experiment. I'm going to give you two choices, okay? This is choice A and this is choice B. Got it? Choice B, choice A, right? So here's choice A, okay, because I've been granted a special dispensation of, you know, powers. So choice A is you can leave today, you can go out that door, choice A, you go out that door and you will never feel any pain, any suffering, any hurt, any disappointment. Okay? Choice A, you go out that door today, you will never feel any pain, any suffering, any hurt, or any disappointment. Okay? Choice B, choice B, you will walk out of that door and you will stay the same. Feeling pain, feeling suffering, feeling hurt, disappointment. Okay? Now, I have to add this, because this is the sort of, kind of the, 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 like those are sort of the in the per, the parentheses. I don't. What's the legal language called, Brent? I don't know. Never mind. So, okay. So if you go out this door where you will never feel any pain, never feel any suffering, never feel any hurt, never feel any disappointment. If you go out that door, you will also never desire anything. You won't love. You won't want, and you won't care. Got it? I just want to make sure everybody's clear because I, I cannot give you your money back. All right? Okay? So I want you to ask yourself, which would you choose? A, no pain, no suffering, no hurt, no disappointment, no desire, no feelings for anything, no longing, no loving, no caring. Or choice B, you stay the way you are. Pain, suffering, hurt, disappointment, caring, desiring, longing, loving. Which would you choose? Is B tempting? I mean, for, if you're here, for people who are, like, knee-deep in suffering, and this is generally kind of the case, people who are, like, sort of up to here, in that moment, B is what they'll sometimes choose. But when you ask, okay, so if you weren't here, well, they would choose A. Did anybody... Did anybody think, well, that's a no-brainer, I'd choose A. I mean, excuse me, I'd choose B. Anybody? Anybody think it's, anybody, is it attractive to any of you not to care, not to feel, not to want, not to long, not to love? Is that attractive? If you said, well, no, since you put it that way, Greg, I'm not going to go out of door A. I'm going to go out of door B because I don't want to lose any of that. Okay, so if that's, you know, too abstract. All right, so if you have a piece of paper, take a piece of paper. If you don't have a piece of paper, you can just sort of, you know, get the image in your head, okay? Uh, but it really works better if you've got a piece of paper. So take a piece of paper, and on one side of the piece of paper, I want you to write down someone or something that means a lot to you. I mean, someone that, or something, that you hold dear. Just write down on one side of that paper, or get it in your head, someone or something that you hold dear. Okay. Now, on the flip side of that paper, the flip side... I want you to write down 
some of those feelings that you have related to that person that are really difficult. Right? Maybe, maybe some of the feelings that you have related to that person are fear. They're things that scares you about that person, something that's going on with that person, something that's happened to that person, something that might happen to that person. Or if it's a thing, something that could happen to that thing. Maybe there's some sadness. Or maybe there's some pain. You, know, you, know, you, you sort of think about this person that you hold dear and something happening, creating pain. You got it? One side, person who's dear to you. The other side, the yucky stuff, the pain, the yucky. Okay. So how about this? Okay, so I can, I can help you. I can help you this morning. I can get rid of that pain. Anybody want to throw it in here? Anybody want to throw it away? There it is. You want to throw it away, Lindsay? No. Huh? Sorry, Lindsay? <laughs> you want to throw it away, Lindsay? Huh? You're good? You're going to hold what you got? Okay. Anybody want to throw it away? Okay. So maybe what you're sort of realizing is if you throw away that pain, you got to throw away the other thing too. You got to throw away that person. So I hope that you're, I hope this wasn't too abstract. I hope you're able to see that. You already intuitively get what Solomon is going to say in Ecclesiastes 7. You already get it. You're already feeling the tension and the, and the pinch. You already get that the good stuff, the, the, the stuff that you like, carries with it, with it this bad stuff or eesh, this negative stuff, the yucky stuff. You already get that you can't have one without the other. Okay? It's not possible. And the, the choice A that I gave, go out this door and you never feel any of that pain again, but you also never feel any of the caring, that's not hypothetical. That's what happens. Some of you experience this. Right, just as an aside, some of you experience this. When you try to numb the yucky stuff, you don't get to selectively choose which affects you dispense with. If you, if you select the yucky stuff and you hit delete, guess what? All the other stuff goes too. That's the way God made us. It's not fair. You'd have done it differently if you'd have made us, but thank goodness that's not the case. So, you already get it. You already do. You don't like it. I don't like it. It's no fun. But you get it. And this gets pressed when we look at Ecclesiastes 7. Because Solomon brings up something that none of us like to deal with. He brings up death. And, you know, that's the reason that there was no title for the sermon today. Okay, just get ready. This is sort of the, you know, that, um, that, that laugh break before we get serious. See, what I'm doing right now is it shows you what I'm doing right now is uh, I'm anxious about talking about something like this because so right now I'm delaying. I'm putting it off, right? And you probably are all going, hey, that's fine with me. Don't hurry. Don't hurry. We're going to talk about death. I really don't want to. So I've forgotten what I was going to say now. I really did. Um, what? Oh, title. Thank you. Title of the message. That's the reason there was no title of the message. That's the reason there was no title for the message, because you wouldn't have come. 
<laughs> we were on spring break. Right? And I was talking this morning, and I said, and then the alternative was I was going to just name it, Oh, Death, dot, dot, dot. What are you going to say about that? So we are talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and actually you can go there, but we're going to back up because there are just a few verses in the last part of chapter 6 that kind of form the introduction to this, or I guess more like a transition to this. It's a nice summary of what Solomon has been talking about up to this point in the book, and I'm going to come at it a little different, different way, but just, just listen to the, I mean, I'm not the only one that does this, but listen to what Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 12 says. Here's the summary of what's been talked about already. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which pass, passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So what Solomon has been talking about up to this point is a mystery. He says, starts the whole book, you hear it here, that word vanity, right? The actual, just the metaphor off, off the top. The metaphor that Solomon uses there is simply vapor. Habel, right? Or Havel. It's vapor. That's the metaphor. And there are folks, there are sort of commentators who would say, you know, I wish that we would just have left the, the metaphor there and just let it stand on its own. Because vanity and meaninglessness, those don't really capture what Solomon is trying to do here. He's not this sort of on the back side of his faith that he's just angry and mad. Right? That's not what his point is. There's another way to read what's going on here. He's stating something that is, this simply is. That life is a vapor. That's what wisdom has taught him. That's, the idea is that it, it, it is enigmatic. It's a mystery. It's uncontrollable. He uses the word gain. What gain? He uses it in this passage here. What gain? What advantages can, can, does man have? The idea there is what leverage? What can man do to leverage to get control over, to get it an advantage in this vaporous existence? At the, we've started talking about this at the college Bible study, and I got the bright idea to say that, oh, okay, I got the bright idea to, I, to, to take some aluminum foil, right, to make a makeshift um, little fire pit. Is Jerry here? <laughs> okay, good. It wasn't a big fire pit, Jerry. It was, no, I just wanted to make a little thing, and sort of we, we, we lit some, um, we lit some, paper towels on fire, and I had made my, my uh, safety cover, aluminum foil safety cover, put the fire out, and just asked, invited any, you know, the college student to come up and, and to be prepared whenever I took this off to form the smoke that would come out into something. Nobody could do that, Right? You, you can't form smoke into anything substantial. It will always pass through your fingers. That's what vapor is all about. There is nothing. This is what he's, he keeps coming to. He keeps hitting this wall. Nothing that's going to give us advantage, it's going to give us the kind of leverage that we need to get control over this thing. We're going to, get, we're going to be able to corral this smoke. 
We're going to be able to get it, to get it, to shape it so that it, it looks exactly like we want it, and it's going to stay there. That's what Solomon keeps hammering over and over and over again. That's his idea. And oddly enough, he doesn't come to this, up to this point, he, well, yeah, he doesn't come to this sort of, you know, oh, everything is, it's fatalistic, right? I mean, he's going to say some things that initially sound like, oh, there's nothing. I might as well just sit on my couch and just, you know, pass away. That's why the whole meaningless, you know, vanity thing doesn't really get it, at least in my estimation. The idea, you'd think he, you know, he's coming to this point, but that's not where he goes. Over and over again, he comes to this truth. What do we do then? We eat. We drink, we rejoice. We eat, we drink, we rejoice. If you go back and read the book, that, that, almost, that almost captures the major sections of the book. That refrain, has, it's not just one time he says it, over and over and over and over again he says it. That's the conclusion he keeps coming to. We live these lives of gratitude where we say, oh, we are receivers of the gifts of God. The work that we do, this is another thing he says, the works that we do. We live in this world where there's oppression and all this other vaporous stuff. What do we do? Does he say, well, you just give up, lay down. No, he says, you work. You do the things that God has given your hands to do, and you're rejoicing because he has given it to you to do. And you don't just do this for yourself, you do this for others. So now we got this community. This is not a pessimistic book. As one writer said, it's a book of faith. So I I need to couch what we say in that context when we come to to this chapter. 6, 10 through 12 sort of summarizes all of that stuff. He says, hey, look, man, God. God's the one in control. God's the one that knows man. God's the one that has named everything. Not man. And man can't stand up to him. You you can't push back. (laughs) That's the struggle. I mean, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that tension and that of you not being able to push back against God? Can't push back. Verse 11, you can keep talking and talking and talking and talking. It's still vapor. You're not going to get any control. You're not, no matter what you do, you're not going to have this control to push back against God that way. And so that transitions us. He says, what's good for man? Now, that's another common refrain. What is good for man to do then? What do we do? If this is the way it is, how do we respond? And then he starts a series of, of comparisons in chapter 7. And these are sort of what he's given us now. And this is the thing. And if you don't, this is something hard, especially for you folks that like straight lines and, you know, 90-degree angles, right? You know, what you're going to find in wisdom is that there's a lot of ambiguity. I mean, if... If you find it difficult when you go to somebody and you're looking for an answer, right? A clearly, a clear, definitive answer to something. And they say, I don't know, it depends. (laughs) Do you like that? Is that fun? Really? I really wanted you to give me something hard and fast. Okay, well that's, you know. If you you sort of put like Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes on a continuum... Right, Proverbs is over here. Everything is, uh, 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 and then Ecclesiastes just <laughs> blows it all up. Really, you know, because that's wisdom. Right, we learn to grow in wisdom, and we say, "Oh, okay." So I don't know. It depends. Let's look at this. Let's look at this from another angle. You'll see this over and over again here. Okay, so. In chapter 7, verse 1, this is where he begins our discussion. It's just four verses. So, it's not that these are good and bad. This is 
good and better. 7.1 says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. So a good name, as you might imagine, has to do with character. And you get that, right? A good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, well, precious ointment, you know, that has to do with this sort of wealth, blessing. And you're going to see this over and over again. Like Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And Amos 6, I think, actually shows both of these things that precious ointment is about wealth and blessing, and then it actually proves the point that's being made in this section of the proverb. Amos 6, 4 through 6 says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of a harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in a bowl and anoint themselves with the finest of oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, right? If you know anything about the context of Amos, right, there's lots of this wealth. That's what this fine oils, precious oils, that's the idea that's carried here. Good name is better than this abundance. Got that? That's fairly straightforward. If we get that, if we get the analogy of precious oil, then, okay, that's fairly straightforward. But the other comparison is a little bit more difficult. How is death better than birth? How is death better than birth? In fact, and you can't talk about this stuff without the context of Israel's history, right? The opposite would seem to be the truer point. Because birth, let's say Deuteronomy 28, birth has to do with blessing, right? Israel's history, if we're having babies, woo, God is blessing us. This is his covenant faithfulness. We got lots of oil, woo, God is blessing us. But no births, barrenness, you see that theme over and over and over again. That seems to be more equated to death, right? There's not birth. That seems like that's death. And that's part of this, in Deuteronomy, right, that would be part of the curse. So this is really, seems like it's confusing. Because Solomon says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Death throws a wrench in these comparisons. Do you see how death, and I know you're still thinking about it, right? You're still trying to figure it out. Well, okay, one plus one equals. Because death throws a wrench in this. It does the same thing in the other comparison, right? If we do it a different way. Like if we take, if we just look at the connection between the betters and the lessers, right? We, we could look at the comparisons on their own, but now let's, let's connect the, the things that are better and the things that are lesser here. In the lessers, Clearly, precious ointment is the lesser, right? It's not bad. It's just not as good as a good name. Got it? Does that track with that? And clearly, that's connected to day of birth because day of birth is, in this case, is the lesser. Both are relatively good. Listen to John and Psalm 133. John 16, 21 to 22 says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy, for, for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. Joy. Birth. Psalm 33, 2. It is like the precious oil on the beard. Oh, excuse me, on the head. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This oil, you know, he's talking about fellowship, right? This oil, soothing, good stuff. Clearly, these two things are the lessers, right? 
precious ointment and the day of birth. And they're both, you got the kind of connection between them is that connection of, you know, abundance, blessing, joy. All right, that makes some sense, right? Well, let's look at the, the gooders or the betters. Right? A good name, that's the better. And the day of death is a better. See, it doesn't, we could do the math either way. It still seems weird. Okay, so the only thing, it seems like, the only thing they have in common, good name and day of death, is that they're both better. But how do they relate to each other as betters? How does that work? We could ask this, how is the day of death better than anything? How is the day of death better than anything? We work really hard to try to find something. We work really hard to try to find some satisfying connection, which usually involves somehow getting rid of death. I mean, is that your experience? Is it? Is that your experience that you find yourself in dealing with something like this? That the end result tends to be somehow covering it over? We'll come back to that in a second. Or in just a little bit. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, what we see is that that it's not a possibility. That's not the direction that Solomon goes. Listen to chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living, uh, the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith, I mean, excuse me, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So we can... Look at what Solomon is saying in the first part of both of those. Verse 2, the first part of verse 2 and verse 3. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. Again, this seems backward. Feasting and rejoicing. Clearly, this was sort of this sort of climactic focal point of all of Israel's history. Remember this, it was called a festival calendar, right, of worship that habituated them. Mourning, that seems to be God's curse. Again, and even the Old Testament story, even the Old Testament as a story as a whole, death is the problem that God's redemptive work is trying to deal with. And even... And even in the New Testament where we see the, con the climax of that story, where God does deal with it, even in the New Testament, both the Old and the New Testament, death is still here. It was for his original readers, death was still here for them. And now when we back up, we can all go, well, you know, Jesus has come. That is true. But death is still here with us. It's still present. And that's, that's actually sort of the tense that Solomon keeps bringing us back to in this book. Here, right now. How do we deal with this? What is this, 
right now. The second part of verse 2 and 3, here's where we start to get some answers. Here's where we start to put the pieces together. You get two reasons and an obligation. Two reasons and an obligation here. You notice that it said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind. We are all going there. All of us. I was talking to Zoe one time in the car. We're driving along, right? And this is usually when this happens with me and Zoe. I'm driving a car. I say something to Zoe. And we were talking. I don't know what we were talking about. But she had something to do with death. And Zoe goes, can we stop talking about this? This is morbid. So what did I say? Okay. Now, I'm not, at, I'm not suggesting that you do it this way. Because I don't know what the fallout is yet. <laughs> I don't. Okay? So, but I said, <laughs> in, all, in all of my wisdom, I said, what? She said, it's morbid. I said, Zoe, you do realize that we're all going to die. Right? <laughs> Nobody's laughing. Everybody's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you said we're all going to die. And depending on, the, depending on the context, it might, you know, like feel really urgent. We're all going to die. But it goes further than that. Okay, we're all headed there. And this, the little obligation is, in, your, in, our, in our versions it says... Um, and the living will lay it to heart. Right? The form of the verb there is actually, an, it's more obligatory. And the living should take it to heart. Because that's the problem. When you don't take it to heart, and there were several, actually there were a lot of passages where this take it to heart phrase came up and the implications of it. So we've got this reason. Why pay attention to death? Why is, why is going to the house of mourning better? Well, number one, we're all going there. And number two, you should, you ought to be taking it to heart. And number three, this seems to be sort of the outcome. Sorrow is better than laughter for sadness of, for by sadness of faith. Okay, get this. By Sadness of face, heart is made glad, or really, literally good. Now, we don't have to know anything else yet, because I can't give you an exhaustive explanation. We don't have to know anything else yet, but simply this. The Solomon is saying, we, we go to the house of mourning, and we take it in. And somehow, this is going to lead somewhere that will impact me here. It will change me here. The center of who I am. It does something for us. At a funeral, we come face to face with this reality. A reality that we absolutely cannot control. Our mortality. I mean, if there is anything that demonstrates our limitation, it's death. You imagine this. For, for all of our accomplishments... All of our great understanding that we've gleaned and gained. And there's talk about this, right? About being able to sort of, you know, um, um, somehow put consciousness somewhere else. But for all of this talk, we can't do it. 
can. We have no control over death. And this is the odd thing. Solomon says we're not meant to run away from it. We're meant to let it sink in. We're meant to, we're meant to move towards it, to hold it, and let it move us and do something to us. Does that sound Does that sound good to you? It's sort of like for me, it would be sort of like um you know picking up a snake. Please. Please. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to contemplate the snake. I'm, I'm certainly not going to embrace the snake. Right? Some of you people will. And I think that's nuts. <laughs> even, if it's, even if it's not poisonous. I don't care. It's a snake. Right? How far can I get it away from me? Right? I mean... I mean, you tell me, is that the way that you approach death? This is, this, oh, I'd love to hear some of the, I mean, if y'all have conversations about this, I'd love to hear them. Um, that's one of the difficulties is you don't get that, you know, like at a, at a time like this. It's a struggle. But it gives us a perspective. It gives us perspective that we need to know, you know. It gives us a perspective that helps us to see this is what, this is what, it, this is what life is about. This is reality. And by that perspective, I don't mean, as true as this may be, I don't mean simply that we should learn to treasure the people that we love or those things that we have that we care about because when you lose them, they're gone. That's true. I don't think that's all there is to this. I mean, and you know that. What did Solomon learn? Listen to what he said a little bit earlier in the book. In Ecclesiastes 2.15, he says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vapor. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all have, will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. He's contemplating death. Solomon's going, okay, so... And remember, in wisdom, he says this over and over again, in wisdom, he's not like sort of tongue-in-cheeking it. He really means, yeah, that wisdom that I prayed for and God gave me like more than anybody else that had come before me and nobody since except for Jesus, yes, that wisdom, in that wisdom, here's what I said. That sounds like I'm getting gypped. What? This guy? It's going to be the same place that I am. We're going to have the same thing happen. And wait a minute. So, yeah, this guy's an idiot. Nobody should remember him. But you mean the wise, they just get forgotten too? Yeah. Right? Most of us have got about 80 years maybe, and nobody is going to remember who you were. You get that, right? <laughs> right? Right? It's less for you, bud, but, I mean, because, you know, you're older than me. But, but not because you're, you know, you're a better guy than me. And so, I mean, I would say that if anybody should be remembered, you should. But, not. okay. <laughs> so, 
This is what he comes up with. And then he says in verse 17, listen to this. So, his word, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vapor and striving after the wind. Or all is vapor and shepherding the wind. I hated life. It's not a statement of this raving, skeptical lunatic. That's someone who sees it as it is. Ugh. I mean, do, you, do, do any of you kind of float through life saying, it's okay? No, things didn't go my way, but it's okay. I'm just, I'm just going to rub my, lo- my hand along the furniture and enjoy where I am. Do any of you do that? Do any of you recognize that things blow up? That things go wrong? And that has a significant impact on you? Would any of you, having lost someone, say, it's good to have had them while they were here. I mean, it seems like what Solomon is getting at here by wisdom is that's supposed to be something that you see. That's supposed to be something that you realize, not something that you pretend doesn't exist. That's what our tendency is. Sorrow, the idea here of sorrow Sadness of face, leading us to this good heart, carries the idea of, or the connotation of this sober, somber reflection. Makes the heart glad. That means in the midst of all of that stuff, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that sorrow, in the midst of that mourning, there is birthed this dissatisfaction and this, this delight. I can't, I can't tell you about this. Not from experience because I've never lost anybody. I haven't. Not anybody, I mean, I've lost my, like, my grandparents, but they were very distant. You know, I didn't, I didn't know them that well. I mean, yeah, not like, not like, not like some of you, I mean, where you guys were like, bam, you know, me and grandma, me and granddad. I mean, I just, it hasn't been that way. And I find myself, and I'll just say this, right, I find myself having difficulty with it. I have a hard time watching Disney movies. Right? I'm going to take your silence as you feel the same way I do. Right? <laughs> I have a hard time watching Disney movies because there are these key moments. And I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. But I get emotional. <laughs> like, that's sad. <laughs> She's going away. It's sad. And you know what I do? I'm like, you know, if I get like a little tear or something, I'm like. I don't want anybody to know. Right? Do you think that's not connected to this? What we're talking about here? I don't like it. I don't like separations. I don't like, I don't like any of that stuff. It's hard. Because of what we experience. And then lastly, and this is really where it gets strong. Ecclesiastes 7.4 gets really strong here. 
He sort of gives us the punch. Ecclesiastes 7.4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is, is, is in the house of mirth. Here he gets right to it. Wisdom grows. What was going on in that heart that was uh, engaged in sober, somber reflection and sorrow and mourning is the development of a wise heart. The contrast, remember earlier, is mourning, house of mourning, house of feasting. Here he sort of tweaks it to really help us see what the difference is. He gives it a negative twist. To pursue a life of laughter and feasting, and in the context, that is to try to lock out death and mourning and sadness that leads to the life of the fool. So what Solomon is essentially saying is, if you refuse to go to the house of mourning, to engage in this somber reflection, you're headed in the direction of a fool. That's strong words that he's given us. The former, here's sort of the outcome in the big picture that Solomon drives at. The former, the people that go to the house of mourning, what they see is that the only one that controls this vapor is him, God. He's it. This is what it drives us. This is what taking it to heart is all about. Recognizing him. Seeing him. The latter, the fool, here's the idea. They're refusing to see that. Refusing. We're not habituated to think and live the way that Solomon is teaching here. I mean, would you agree that in our culture, the tendency is for us to be sort of shaped in a way that seeks to avoid yucky experience? You have a cold, you have a stuffy nose, you should not have that stuffy nose. Why put up with that irritation and just annoyance? Here, take some medicine. Isn't that wonderful? It's gone. Now you can go on living. Right? Right? Or how about, remember, the, is, there, is anybody in here Claritin clear? Anybody? I can't take Claritin because of my blood pressure. Anybody? I'm, I'm envious. Anybody? Now, don't you love that way in the commercial? You know, the person that's, you know, <laughs> dancing now. Right? They, the, the film, that yucky film is ripped off. Now I see life as it's supposed to be seen because I'm Claritin clear. Right? Right? Do you have that, that, that uncomfortable, yucky stomach feeling? You know? That's all. <laughs> right? We don't want to think about our mortality. We're not shaped that way here. We're not. We're habituated in really invisible ways to... Avoid this stuff. And we're almost done. Let me just ask you this. Think about funerals. Okay? Now, um, okay, so I'm going to act. I'm going to speak in ter wisdom terms, right? We're not I'm, not, I'm not castigating what I'm about to talk about. I just want to sort of point something out. Let's think about funerals. Right? Isn't it interesting that our tendency tends to make funerals about something other than what they are about. I'm not suggesting that we don't celebrate people's lives. That's part of grieving, is taking this 
horrible, you know, difficult, painful thing and reconciling it with all of that good stuff, those memories. That's what grieving is about. That's sort of part of the process, right? But that's not what we're doing. Our tendency is to call them celebrations of life. That's that's a difficult burden to put on people. Because, you know, sort of what we are essentially saying is, I know that what you think you ought to do here, right, in this moment is grieve, but let's not do that, okay? Let's not. Let's just, let's, can we put that away for a little bit? Because this person, we can celebrate them. Now, obviously, I'm being, I'm caricaturing it. But for a reason. Because it seems like, from Solomon's vantage point, it is a horrible distortion of our experience and what we're supposed to do. So now what we're saying, the what best helps my heart, what be- best helps develop this in here, is for me to pretend like I don't see. That's a difficult way to live. We do the same thing, right, with, when we're with, with people. We want them to hurry up and not feel grief. We say things to people that are an attempt to make them feel better. And, we, and generally, we want, it's hard to see somebody grieving. We don't want, we, we, we want, but instead of joining them in the grief... You know, we want them to be out of that grief so that we don't have to be in that grief. So I'm going to make you feel better so that I can feel better. Huh. Have you never felt this tension before? Never? Am I the only one that doesn't know what to say sometimes? It's... that will avoid and then feel bad about avoiding, right? I didn't go see him, right? It's too hard. Mourning and sorrow and sadness, all of these are the right responses to affliction and death, right? The stuff that Solomon's been talking about. And those, response, re, re, those responses help us Help us to come to grips with the reality that is life under the sun. Right? That's the key refrain in, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. Life now is life after the fall. This is what we have to deal with. And Solomon's giving us a way that is the response of faith. As odd as that may sound, what we've been talking about, leaning into, moving towards mourning, is a response of faith. In short, it's in those times that we know that he's God. We know that he's the one, this is where it points us, he's the one in control. Because I certainly know that I am not. And the only hope that we have of having this kind of viewpoint is the incarnation of Christ. It's the only hope that we have of this. Were you able to put that slide together for me? Can you bring up the first one? Here's what we assume, right? Here's, here's where we, two different ways of looking at this. Okay, so here's death and here's me. You see the circle around me? You just read me as you. Okay? You're me. I mean, that me. Okay? You're me. That circle around there is you as a person. Someone who plans. Someone who makes sense of things. Someone who has intention. Right? Now... In this situation, 
Where's death? Where is, where is death in terms of that planning and intention and purposing? It's out there. Right? It's just there. You got to figure out what you're going to make of it, but it's out there. It doesn't, it's not included in you. Now go to the next one real quick. Here's something different. Here's God. Now the circle's God. And inside God is death and you, which is me. Circle's the same thing. It's personal. It's what persons do. Persons intend. Persons plan. Persons imagine. Persons envision. Persons purpose. In this case, me and death fall inside of him. And the only way that that death, which is part of his intentionality, his purposive plans, only way that that is in any way uh, something I can bear, something I can move close to, is because that me that is Inside that personal God is inside Christ. That, that gives me this stable point of reference. So if, you're, if you were looking for that, if you were sort of scrambling all throughout this sermon going, oh, wow, how do you do that? Right? I feel like I'm in a mudslide trying to get something to catch a hold of. Here's our stability in Christ, in him who is God. We have this, we have this promise that that death is not outside of him. And it's not just not outside of him. He does something with it. When we look at death, we see our limitations, but we can't obviously leave this there because when we go with Paul, we also see that death itself is limited. Right? Inside that circle, death is limited. Here's how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And here, it's not vapor, it's empty. Here in this vapor, your labor is not empty. What we do is not meaningless. Death's not the final answer because of Christ. He deals with this vaporous existence. Doesn't remove it, but he's dealt with it. Christ, because he's the one in control of it. We have him. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy, the way that you the way that you have given us your words, that you've given us a way of understanding this world that we live in and this skin. We thank you for um, the comfort and what you sustain us with to do this very hard thing, to recognize this mourning and suffering that is inevitable. Pray that you will be with those who are in the midst of this suffering in a way that I have never experienced it. I pray that in the absence of resolution and answers that you will grant a comfort in your upholding hand. For those of us who are 
reflecting on this. Give us strength to reflect all the more. For those of us who have never experienced it, who are struggling to move towards it, who find ourselves avoiding and trying to escape, pray that you would move our hearts. Strengthen our hearts to want to see what you have to show us in it. We thank you that you have made sense of all of these things in the death and the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ.